If you take the Word of God with me again and turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter number 3, and we'll be looking at verses 4 through 6. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Uh, last Sunday, we looked at the first three verses of this chapter, dealing with the work of Christ. And we learned about the things that we are, the things of what we shall be, and the things of what we shall see. And of course, John came to the conclusion that that is our source of hope. And because we have this source of hope, uh, verse 3 told us that we purify ourselves. And we do that in the pattern of being pure as Christ is pure. John continues this line of thinking with regard to purity. Uh, He continues thinking about the transgressions and the sin against the law of God. And he gives us this marvelous revelation of Christ being manifested or Christ appearing for the purpose of taking away our sins. So I'll draw your attention here. We'll read verses 4 through 6. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. That expression there in verse 5, he, that's Christ, was manifested to take away our sin. I want to preach this morning on the manifestation of Christ, the manifestation of Christ. As we learned last Sunday, we saw again that the children of God will be like Christ. We learned a little bit this morning in our study of Colossians about the things that we are to put off and the things we are to put on. All children of God will seek to be like Christ We have the hope that we learned last week of one day seeing him as he is. We will one day see our Lord through eyes that no longer have sin, to see our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is this hope, this hope that engages us and this hope that carries on, carries us in this life. It is our code of conversation, if you will. It's the way we conduct ourselves. It's the way in which we live. And in order to enforce this even more deeply, John deals with in these three verses really the the depth or the nature of sin. What is sin? What really is it? How do we define it? Uh, With its definition, what what is sin designing to do? And what did Christ do uh, when he came and he died for sin? And so we're given not only the definition of what sin is, Uh, but we're given the very remedy in which sin was taken away. And we see that it is connected with this manifestation of Jesus Christ in the flesh. We're dealing with his incarnation. We're dealing with Christ taking on human flesh without ceasing to be God. Fully man, fully God, God appears in human flesh. The appearance of Christ in the flesh for the purpose of taking away our sin. 
his purpose to take away sin. Notice it speaks very clearly to those that would suggest that Christ himself was a sinner, which is false, that is a false teaching. In him is no sin. Christ, not for a single moment, did he become a sinner. He became sin for us, the sinner. He took on the full wrath, the full penalty, the full payment for our sin. That hymn that we sing, his robes for mine. He, as us, took on our sin. But we, as him, take on his righteousness. That's a beautiful picture. Not because we were sinless, but because he took on our sin. And this leads us to consider this communion, this fellowship that we have by abiding in him. We abide in him. We see him. We know him. John even makes reference here that if you continue in sin, he says you have not seen him. Now, I will tell you, there have been people that have struggled with verses like this. There are people that struggle because they see this and they immediately begin to say, well, wait a minute, I still sin. I still commit sin. How can I be saved? How can I be a child of God? Because he said, whosoever committeth sin transgress the law. I sin today, so how can I be in him? John has something very specific in mind in what he's talking about here. He's talking about a sinful course of life. He's not talking about a sinless life. He's talking about a life that is marked by sin, a life that is marked by continuing, if you will, in the old man, in the old deeds, is continuing to live as if there has not been a change. So we see here in verse number four, and really two aspects of sin. First of all, we, we see the definition of sin. Very clearly, he says, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. Here's the definition for sin is the transgression of the law. When someone tries to define sin, there is the best definition of what sin is, a transgression of the law. Sometimes people will say, what is sin? And they'll give a particular sin. They'll say sin is lying or sin is stealing. Sin is adultery. Those are particular sins, but what sin is, is the transgression of God's law. That's what sin is defined. Men will try to uh, change it philosophically. Men will try to change it psychologically. They'll try to mar it. They'll try to change it. There is no greater definition of what sin is than this. Sin is the transgression of the law. Any ideas outside of that would be man's spin on what sin is. So sin is any time God's law is transgressed. So that's the definition of it. Well, what is the design of sin? Well, notice again, he says, whosoever committeth sin. This is in direct connection with what's now following. Sin here, whether it's a great sin, whether it's a small sin, the design here or the purpose here is speaking of a course of sin, the life of sin. He's talking about a willful, obstinate persistence in sin. 
that which is known to be a violation or a transgression of the law of God. That's who he's talking about, whosoever commits this sin. Obstinately, willfully persisting, that's the definition of what he has in mind here. It is a sinner that does not give himself or herself herself over to pureness, to purity. Again, remember what he said. He that has this hope in him, verse 3, purifies himself even as he is pure. This is the expectation of a person who is in Christ, that they will purify themselves. So the person who continues this continues that the very design of their life is to continue in the course of sinning are not one of his. Now, this is a very short definition of sin. All right, so where do we get this rule of what's pure and what's right? We get that from the law of God. Purity is defined by what God's law says purity is. So if sin is a transgression of the law, then sin is also a transgression of that which is pure, that which is holy, that which is righteous. But notice he doesn't just say randomly, whosoever commits sin. He says specifically what they are transgressing. Transgresseth also the law. This is not specifically at the law of man, unless that law of man is founded or agrees with the law of God. What he has in mind here is a transgression against the law of God. There are instances where the laws of men and their transgressed are not a sin against the law of God. But here he's speaking of transgressing the law of God. The law of God here, of course, he has in mind is the continuation of the moral law. He's not talking about the keeping of the ceremonial law. He's not talking about the the Jewish sacrifices. He's talking about the moral law of God. Similar to what we read in Galatians 5, 5 about the fruits of the Spirit. Similar to what we've talked about in this morning in our study of Colossians. There, there is this regard for the love of God. There's a love towards our neighbor. Right? But he that commits sin is transgressing in one or more of these ways. So where does the law convict you? Where does the law say you have transgressed? When it's a violation of the law of God. A violation of the law of God pronounces he or she who violates it as being guilty. As a result, those who violate the law of God, who are proclaimed guilty, they are cursed and then they are condemned. So to stand today in violation of God's holy law without the remedy of Jesus Christ's atoning sacrifice being applied, you stand today guilty, cursed, and condemned. In your current state, if you are without Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You have transgressed. You have violated the law of God. On the flip side, those that are in Christ, they are no longer found guilty. They are no longer under the curse of the law, and they are no longer condemned. Romans 8 tells us there is therefore now no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The key is in Christ Jesus condemnation is no more. 
So he's not even talking about those who have had their guilt removed and have had the curse removed. And he's not talking about those who were once condemned, now suddenly having all those things thrust back upon them. He is clearly saying that those who continue to persist in an obstinate, willful transgression of the law are not one of his. This is not a passage about losing your salvation. This is about those who continue to walk this way cannot be one of his. It says, verse 6, that they have not seen him. So we understand here that God's law is perfect. The law of God, it has no contradictions. It is holy, it is just, it is good, it is right. It is the perfect will of God. Why is the, will and, uh, why is the law of God perfect? Because the law perfectly agrees to the nature of God and his perfections. In other words, the problem is not the law. It never has been. The law is not the problem. The problem is the sinner violates, transgresses that law. Now, man is trying everything he can do to try to rewrite the laws of God. Right? And sadly, some of our nation's laws are trying to be uh, marred and changed to manipulate, to change what the law of God actually is. Right? And man will do that. Man will not only change the laws of a nation to suit his fancy, but he will try to change the laws of God. And what will he do when he changes the laws of God or attempts to? He will redefine sin. If you redefine sin, you can change the consequences, or so you think. I can change the consequences of what the violation of God's law will result in. But the law says, whosoever transgresseth or violates this, right, will be found guilty, will be cursed, and will be condemned. Not what man's law says, but what God's law says. Ultimately, all sin is a sin against God himself. It's not just a violation of the law itself. It's a sin against God himself. So when man is declared to be a sinner, he has sinned against God. He's not just broken God's law. He has, he has sinned against the very God of the law. Amen. You see, that's what an unconverted sinner has to be brought to an understanding about what it is they're guilty of. You can't just tell them you committed adultery, so you're a, you're a sinner. Yes, that's true. But why? Because God's law says thou shalt not commit adultery. You see how we can take the, we can take the particular sin and, and miss the definition of what it actually is. Sin is a transgression of God's law. What sin? Any sin that violates God's law is a transgression. But isn't that the God of the Old Testament, they'll say? The God of the old is the God of the new. Amen. God has never changed. Amen. But God is such a wrathful God in the Old Testament. He's pouring out judgment in such ways. He's still a God who demands a perfect righteousness. A perfect righteousness that's only found in Jesus Christ. Amen. It's always been found in Christ. 
Sin, then, is whatever is a transgression of that law. What does the law require? Paul would speak often about this. The law, to be perfectly kept, requires a conformity to the nature of that law. And wherever you fail to conform to the nature of that law and to the perfection of that law, man is considered to have breached it or broken it. So unless I can be perfect like God, unless I can have the nature like God, then I can never keep the law. I'll break it over and over and over again. The law is primarily concerned with the will. It's concerned with our affections. It's concerned with our desires, what our mind wants. It's not just concerned about our outward actions. The outward actions of life, some might say, well, this particular outward action is a problem or this particular problem is a sin. But even a violation of the law, a lustful thought, an actual sin can be a course of sinning both in our hearts and our minds, our mouth. Even our thoughts apart from Christ's righteousness, would expose us to a curse and condemnation. So let's just say for a moment, which you can't, let's just say you could keep the law outwardly, perfectly outwardly. You still have a problem with the sin of the mind. You still have a problem with the sin of the heart. You still are breaking. You're still transgressing God's law. That's why it's not just about outward reformation. Again, there are evidences that will come, but do we have to also that we violate the law even in our mind? Some are trying to redefine lust and they say, well, lust isn't a sin. I beg to differ. Lust is a sin of the heart. And yet, the transgression of the law. Now, again, the good news today is, is he's not saying you have to be perfect to be in Christ. Praise God for that. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his many benefits, including that he has not dealt with us according to our iniquities. Because if he deals with every man according to his or her iniquities, you're all condemned. You're condemned now. And you have nothing to be thankful for if you are condemned in your sins today. But yet, here we have this continuing life. Sin is inconsistent with a hope that is found in the sons of God. Now he gets to the great news. It's already to the point where we can rejoice if we're in Christ. We see the definition. We understand that sin, what the design of it is. But verse 5 tells us that it was Christ who put death upon sin. Notice he's writing to people. This is not the first time they've heard this. He said, and ye know, brethren, you know that he, that's Christ, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. You see, Christ destroyed sin, death, Satan, hell, the grave. He destroyed it on the cross. 
And yet here's this marvelous picture that Christ, as He bore the sins of sinners, there was no sin arising from, within, or upon. He became sin for us. He was manifested to take away our sins. The sins of His people, the transgressions of His people, were actually laid upon Him in their totality. In His body, He bore our iniquities. By His stripes are we healed. And yet, it says, in Him is no sin. This is the truth of the gospel. You know he was manifested. Saints in John's day were well instructed and they were well acquainted with the truth of which this speaks. Christ was manifested for this purpose, to take away our sins. Jesus Christ, the Word, the Son of God, who was with the Father, came forth, condescended, came to this earth in the fullness of time, He was truly made manifest in the flesh. The incarnation. Please refer to Jesus Christ coming to this earth and the, as His incarnation, not His birthday. It's the incarnation. He became man. And yet, He took upon this human nature, united it with this divinity. He never ceased to be God, and He came and dwelt among men. And we all know that beautiful word, our Emmanuel. God with us. In Christ, God became fully visible. Just dwell on that for a minute, brethren. Christ God became fully visible to take away our sins. What does it require to take away sins? It requires a reconciliation to be made. It requires a satisfaction for sins committed. It requires a sacrifice. What sacrifice was required? The sacrifice of Himself. The book of Hebrews talks about that the sacrifice of what Jesus did, did what the blood, the thousands and thousands of gallons of bloods of bulls and goats and every other legal sacrifice could not do. Amen. The sacrifice of himself once. Once, never to be repeated. It did all that all the shed blood of all of those animals could never do. And yet we see that Jesus Christ took upon Himself all the sins of His people upon Himself. He carries them to the cross. He bears them with all the punishment that those sins deserved. And where did He take that punishment? In His body. In His humanity. He removed those sins as far as the east is from the west. He utterly destroyed them. He made an end to them. How did He make an end to them? By applying His blood. It's the blood of Christ. Amen. It's always been the blood of Christ. Amen. It's the blood that appeases the justice and the satisfaction of the Holy God. 
What does he mean when he says in him is no sin? We could easily, again, if we don't understand the definition of sin, we could say, oh, there was no, there was no outward sin. No, it means exactly that. In him is no sin. He was different from the very fact that there was no original sin in him. There's original sin in each one of us. We are all guilty because of the sin of Adam. You say, I don't want to be found guilty because of Adam's sin. You can't change that. You are guilty even if you'd never committed a sin on your own. You'd still be condemned and under the curse because of the sin of Adam. In one man fell. Christ didn't have original sin. And this is the distinction you need to make. He didn't have actual sin. This Jesus that's being portrayed in our modern churches, you need to be very careful of it. Because the modern Jesus is being portrayed as really struggling with actual sin. And maybe even crossing the line. And he might have actually sinned. Not my Savior. Amen. No original sin. No actual sin. No inherent sin. There was sin placed upon him but not sin in him and not sin done by him. He became the only one who could stand in the place as a sacrifice for the sins of others. He answered all of the types, all of the shadows, all the sacrifices that the law required. And isn't it interesting, all of those sacrifices were required to be without spot and without blemish, and Jesus Christ fulfilled them all. He didn't offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of himself, but for the sins of others. Christ took sin away. If he took sin away by the sacrifice of himself, it should not be continued or encouraged by us. Since there's no sin in him, we ought to imitate his pure life. Now, can we be pure in every conversation? Can we be pure in every conduct? No, but should that be our aim? Absolutely. Christ bore our sins that we might live unto righteousness and to be a peculiar people. Psalm 5.4 says, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. It ought to be our desire that there is no pleasure in wickedness, there's no pleasure in evil, and that sin, as much as is it within us, that it should not be allowed to dwell. Verse 6, Whoever abideth, or whosoever rather abideth in him, sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Now understanding the definition of what sin is, Understanding that he's not talking about a person who commits sin, but he's talking about the design of life. This makes much more sense. This declaration of sin here is, if this is simply just related to one act of sin, then none of us could say that we've seen him. But see, he says the key here is is that whosoever sinneth hath not seen him. None of us could say, then I've seen him if we've sinned, because we're all guilty of at least one sin. 
right? You're guilty. We're guilty of more than we care to know. Sins of commission, sins of omission. To know to do right and not to do it. Sin. But this relates to the habit of sin. This relates to the course of sin. If we love sin today, if we live in sin, if the main course of your life is sinful, then you haven't seen him. The one thing I love about the book of John, these these epistles of John, is John is very direct, especially with regard to the brethren who know these truths already. And he doesn't say, you know, well, there's, there's, there's some, some circumstances that are allowed for it. Here he says, look, if this is your main pattern of life, if this is the design of your life, is to live and love sin, you haven't seen him. He's not saying, well, there's some what ifs here and what about this and what about that. He says, if, if this is your main course, then you haven't seen him. Nor, look at this, he said, not only have you not seen him, neither have you known him. Now, we just saw last week how we know what we are, what we shall be, and what we shall see. So in the very same context, he turns around and says, look, if you're truly one of God's children and you're truly abiding in him, this will not be your main course of life. This will not be the habit of your life. If sin is the habitual course of our life, then we do not truly know the Lord Christ. It is He, the child of God who walks with God, who is endeavoring with all diligence to to disentangle or to remove themselves from sin. Sometimes we've gotten this wrong idea that sanctification is all of the work of God. No, we are to take steps to our own sanctification. We are to work out our own salvation. That's not working to earn salvation. That's working out the effects of your salvation, which is our sanctification. Being conformed more into the image of Christ. The man who dwells in Christ, the woman who dwells in Christ, should be a holy person. John, by his declaration here of what sin is and dwelling in sin, simply telling us that the man who lives in sin is not a child of God, for he proves by his evil conduct that he does not have a true union with Christ. Brethren, the world and its modern spin on scriptures and its modern spin on Christianity will try to tell you that there is no need for holiness the very fruit of Christianity, true biblical Christianity, is a holy life. It always has been. But this idea that, look, God's not really concerned about what you do. Just get it settled. Make sure you're on your way to heaven. Make sure you pray the prayer. Make sure you do these things and then live however you want. John is saying exactly the opposite of that. And brethren, I will take John's word over any other man's word. If it doesn't line up with Scripture, then we're not listening to it. John is not making any kind of modifications on this. He's he's declaring that if you're in Christ, a holy life is the fruit. It's the evidence of it. If our main course in life, and the main, one man put it this way, if the tenor of our life is a sinful one, then we are none of His. 
I love what the Geneva Bible in its note says about this verse 6. It says, An argument taken from the material cause of our salvation, Christ in Himself is most pure, and He came to take away our sins by sanctifying us with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, whoever is truly a partaker of Christ does not give himself to sin, and on the contrary, he that gives himself to sin does not know Christ. Now, you understand the, the, the writers of the Geneva Notes, uh, you will know that that's the position they would take on holiness as well. They would take that our walk in Christ will be evidenced by how we walk, not in a sinful course of this life. Whatever a believer does, right, whatever we do in this life, we are not to live to ourselves. We are not to live as to what pleases our flesh. We're not to live to what we most desire, but we are to live to the glory and the honor and the praise of Christ. You see, Christ did not die, was not manifested that we might simply live a sinful course of life. No, he was manifested to take away, notice again, take away our sins. And if we continue to walk as the old man walked, we continue to walk in the old sinful course of life. The Bible's very clear. He's not in us. Today, you could be seated seated here today and for many, many times, for many, many years, you've heard this. You've heard it over and over and over again. You might even understand how, you may even understand the inner workings of, I understand some things about Christ. I understand uh, who he is. I understand why he came. I understand this reality, but yet you're still dead. You're still dead in your trespasses and sins because there's never been a repentance. There's never been an acknowledgement and a repentance and a belief in Jesus Christ. You see that the, the temptation to work our way to salvation. I mean, there is truly, as Martin Luther said, the bondage of man's will. Man will convince himself, I'm doing all the right things. And he'll convince himself of that. She will convince herself, I'm doing all the right things. But the Bible says it's not about what you did or are doing to take away your sins. It's what He did to take away your sins. Only. That means you are incapable fully of taking away, and I'll use the expression, the smallest of your sins. No matter how good of a life you live, no matter what things outwardly you show, Christ was manifested. He appeared to take away our sin. Without Christ, all we can do is sin. Without Christ, that's all we can do. Without Christ, all of our works, all of our actions, all of our motives are robed in sin. Transgressors of the law. And apart from the merits and righteousness of Christ, you have no hope. But you have the hope 
and the command of the gospel, and it is a command to repent and believe the gospel. Repent of your sin. Call upon Christ to save you. Help me to see. Give me eyes to see. Give me ears to hear. Make me willing. Praise the Lord that Christ manifested Himself to take away the sins of His people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, where would we 